1: New season out on Spotify soon. On April 21st, 1968, James Earl Ray sat in a Toronto, Canada bar. According to Legacy of Secrecy, he sipped a screwdriver while the TV played a crime drama called The FBI.
0: Every fictional episode of The FBI ended with the host showing a picture of a real wanted criminal and a call for the public to report any information regarding the case. At the end of that night's episode, the star of the series, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., announced a new addition to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. James Earl Ray's photo appeared on the screen.
1: Sitting in that bar in Toronto, Ray wondered how many people recognized him. He may have felt the weight of every glance cast his way as he settled the bill and left. He knew he didn't just need to leave the bar. He had to get out of Canada, even off of the continent.
0: But wherever he went, Ray could never escape the law. He was wanted for the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And the FBI wouldn't rest until he was found.
1: One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe.
0: Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas.
1: And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. Today, we're looking at James Earl Ray, who in 1969 confessed to killing civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., Mere days later, he recanted his confession, launching a slew of conspiracy theories that persist to this day.
0: This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969.
1: From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point, with 23 special episodes across 16 different podcast originals.
0: We'll be digging into Muhammad Ali's ban from the boxing ring, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParkCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
1: November 22, 1963 was a great tragedy for those who advocated for civil rights. No one could have anticipated that such a great man or a great leader could be struck down by an assassin's bullet. Conspiracy theories would swirl in the coming days, but in the first hours after two bullets ripped through President John F. Kennedy in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, the American public sat in stunned silence.
0: One member of that public was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. King was at his home in Atlanta, Georgia, with his wife, Coretta Scott King, when they saw the coverage of Kennedy's assassination on television. As they took in what they'd seen, King turned to his wife and said what proved to be prophetic words. This is what is going to happen to me also.
1: King's life ended less than five years later. On the evening of April 3rd, 1968, a petty criminal named James Earl Ray took aim from the bathroom at Bessie Brewer's boarding house and killed King with a single shot.
0: Ray was arrested on July 19, 1968. At his arraignment in March 1969, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. However, three days after his plea, Ray recanted his confession. He claimed that he'd been set up to take the fall for a larger conspiracy against King.
1: Now, if you're interested in hearing conspiracy theories about Dr. King's assassination, go ahead and check out our two-part series on the subject on ParCast's other show, Conspiracy Theories. In this episode, we're going to focus on the official story in which James Earl Ray worked alone.
0: Looking at his background, nothing suggests James Earl Ray would become an assassin. However, from a young age, his life seemed preordained for petty crime. Ray was born on March 10, 1928, in Alton, Illinois. He came from a large family and grew up the oldest of eight siblings. Ray's father was a small-time criminal, and the family struggled to make ends meet. They moved around frequently, sometimes to evade the police.
1: As a child, Ray failed the first grade and had to repeat it. In the coming years, he did poorly in school, frequently skipped class, and got in trouble for fighting with his classmates until he finally dropped out at the age of 15.
0: In 1945, 17-year-old Ray enlisted in the military Perhaps the chronic underachiever hoped he would flourish within the structure of army life, but instead he bristled under the strict rules. Stationed in West Germany, Ray was repeatedly disciplined for drunkenness, fighting, and selling stolen goods. On December 23, 1948, he was dishonorably discharged for ineptness and lack of adaptability to military service.
1: Civilian life didn't go any better for him. In 1952, 24-year-old Ray robbed a taxi driver. He was immediately arrested and served two years in prison. He'd only just completed his prison sentence when he was arrested again, this time for burglary. In September 1954, before he could even stand trial, he robbed a post office while out on bail.
0: Ray's criminal activity was usually opportunistic and impulsive, motivated by a need for quick cash. He was a run-of-the-mill petty thief, just like his father had been. He never gave any indication that he was inclined toward premeditated violence or political activism.
1: That doesn't mean that Ray was an advocate for equal rights, however. His brothers would later testify that Ray had strong racist leanings. But he never went so far as to become active within any hate group. His crimes were limited to robberies, which were often poorly planned, leading to his numerous arrests.
0: In October 1959, at the age of 31, Ray was arrested for robbing a Kroger grocery store in St. Louis, Missouri. By this point, he'd been convicted numerous times and was a suspect in several unsolved bank robberies. The courts had lost their patience. Ray was sentenced to 20 years in prison.
1: For decades, historians have struggled to determine Ray's motive for killing Martin Luther King Jr. But it may have been the same simple motive that had driven all his crimes, money. During his time in prison, it's likely Ray heard rumors that white supremacist groups were offering bounties to anyone who could silence Martin Luther King Jr. Whether those bounties actually existed is up for debate, but the rumor was widely circulated throughout the 60s.
0: He may have been tempted by the thought of that payout, or he may have just been tired of sitting around behind bars. But in April 1967, eight years into his 20-year sentence, Ray decided it was time to get out.
1: The Missouri State Penitentiary had a bakery where they prepared bread for all the inmates. Before his escape, Ray stashed a change of clothes in the bread room, a white shirt, and a pair of prison pants he'd dyed solid black with stencil ink. With the help of a few other inmates, Ray snuck into the bakery, changed his clothes, and hid inside a bread box.
0: Four feet tall and three feet wide and deep— The box was large enough for Ray to fit, but he had to crouch. It was not comfortable. Ray's accomplices closed his box, then loaded it onto a truck with the boxes containing actual loaves of bread. Ray rode the bread truck out of the prison gates, stayed on board for several blocks, then jumped out the back of the truck near the Missouri River Bridge. The driver didn't even see him.
1: For nearly a week, Ray lay low, hiding in whatever shelter he could find during the day and walking all night. He feared that a manhunt may catch up to him any day, but he may have overestimated how much attention his escape would get. Because Ray had never shown a tendency toward premeditated violence, the state of Missouri considered him a low priority.
0: Around April 28th, five days after his escape, Ray was willing to risk returning to a populated area. He jumped on board a slow-moving train and hitched a ride to St. Louis, Missouri. His life on the run had begun.
1: As a newly freed man, Ray knew he had to stay under the government's radar in order to avoid re-arrest and a return to prison. He adopted several aliases, including Eric Starvo Galt, Harvey Lohmeyer, and John Willard. Ray wasn't experienced with stealing identities, so he muddled his way through by selecting the names from phone books, then forging fake IDs.
0: Operating under these aliases, Ray spent the year traveling between Mexico and Los Angeles, where he launched a pornographic film company. When his pornography career failed, Ray also tried his hand at restaurant work.
1: From January to March 1968, Ray enrolled in bartending school using the name Eric S. Galt. But this, like his other attempts, failed. Soon, he found himself turning back to crime.
0: During this time in Los Angeles, for the first time in his life, Ray got involved with politics. The world was changing, racial equality was in the news, and Ray was only growing more entrenched in his racist attitudes. Ray began reading The Thunderbolt, a pro-segregation magazine published for an audience of white supremacists. In December 1967, he got into a bar brawl when he hit a dancer who said that she supported equal rights.
1: Ray also volunteered at the North Hollywood headquarters for George Wallace's 1968 presidential campaign. Wallace, an Alabama governor and outspoken white supremacist, had rocketed to national fame when he tried to prevent black students from attending classes at the University of Alabama in 1963.
0: As governor, I am the highest constitutional officer of the state of Alabama. I embody the sovereignty of this state, and I will be present to bar the entrance of any Negro who attempts to enroll at the University of Alabama. As you can hear from that clip of George Wallace, there was no doubting Ray was volunteering for a racist cause. And while these painful sentiments were unfortunately common, when they spread to James Earl Ray, they festered.
1: Throughout early 1968, something was shifting in James Earl Ray's mind. As all his attempts to start a new legitimate life continued to fail, he felt powerless to break himself out of the pattern of criminal behavior he'd become accustomed to. During these few months, Ray became obsessed with hypnosis. Believing that there was a deep-rooted psychological cause for his impulsive criminal behavior, he underwent hypnotherapy to try and change his fate— Around the same time, in March 1968, Ray hired a plastic surgeon and had a rhinoplasty performed. He told the doctor he was an actor, and a new nose would help him land parts. In reality, perhaps he believed that a new face would allow him a fresh start. Or perhaps he simply thought the plastic surgery would make him less recognizable and help him avoid arrest.
0: Just 11 days later, on March 16, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. visited Los Angeles. And when King left Los Angeles, so did James Earl Ray.
1: Ray spent the next several weeks stalking Dr. King around the country. On March 22, 1968, he arrived in Selma, Alabama, where King was due to lead a march that same day. But the march was canceled due to a snowstorm. Ray had missed his chance. Instead, the next morning, he headed to King's hometown, Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Ray's motive for stalking and subsequently murdering King is still up for debate. Maybe he was still tempted by the potential of bounty money. Maybe he hated King because of his calls for equal rights. But whatever Ray's motives, one thing was sure— He wouldn't rest until Martin Luther King was dead.
1: James Earl Ray wasn't the first person who tried to kill Martin Luther King Jr. The son of a Lutheran minister, King had been passionate about justice from a young age. After attending theology school and becoming a minister, King's animated speeches garnered him a following within the civil rights movement— and made him a target for racist violence.
0: King didn't achieve national prominence as a political activist until December 1955, when Rosa Parks was arrested for violating Montgomery's segregation laws. At the time, 26-year-old King had just been elected as the head of a civil rights group called the Montgomery Improvement Association. They'd long been looking for a case they could use to challenge segregation laws and King seized the opportunity.
1: On January 30th, 1956, King called for a boycott of the Montgomery bus system. The boycott lasted nearly an entire year, and it catapulted King to national fame. For the next decade and a half, he led boycotts, marches, protests, and sit-ins. He traveled throughout the South giving speeches. In February, 1957, He was featured on the cover of Time magazine.
0: But for all of King's positive influence, he made numerous enemies. His calls for racial equality were threatening to white supremacists and racists. His advocacy for wealth redistribution was a threat to the wealthy, and his criticism of the Vietnam War alienated many of his former allies in the U.S. government, including President Lyndon Johnson.
1: Throughout the civil rights era, King received numerous death threats and a few assassination attempts. The first attempt occurred on September 20, 1958, when a woman stabbed him in the neck with a letter opener during a book signing. King survived narrowly.
0: King was also a constant victim of harassment from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Since the late 1950s, the FBI's Racial Matters program had been tasked with looking into members of racial advocacy movements. King was investigated for ties to communism and designated as the head of a black nationalist hate group. The FBI tapped his phones, tracked his travels, and in 1964, sent him a threatening letter encouraging him to commit suicide.
1: King knew that his advocacy would make him numerous enemies, but he wouldn't allow himself to be silenced by threats. He continued to fight for what he believed was right.
0: That boldness would eventually lead to his death. In early April 1968, James Earl Ray and Martin Luther King Jr. collided, and the fallout changed the civil rights movement forever.
1: Coming up next, we'll discuss the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the manhunt and trial of James Earl Ray.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: As Martin Luther King Jr. was preaching peace and equality in 1968, James Earl Ray was planning to kill him. Even to this day, it's unclear when or why James Earl Ray decided to assassinate King. With no history of murder or attempted murder, or any close ties to white supremacist movements, his motive remains a mystery.
0: It's precisely because of that lack of clear motive that many conspiracy theorists believe Ray might have been a tool of another group, like the FBI.
1: Whatever his reasons, on March 29, 1968, Ray drove to Birmingham, Alabama, and bought a Remington Game Master 243 caliber hunting rifle. He purchased the gun under one of his aliases, Harvey Lohmeyer, and paid in cash.
0: The next day, Ray went back and exchanged the gun for an even more powerful Remington Game Master 760. The new rifle fired a heavier, deadlier bullet, and its pump-action feature allowed a shooter to fire multiple rounds faster and without looking away from the
1: scope. On April 1st, the newspapers reported that Martin Luther King Jr. would soon be in Memphis, Tennessee. With his new rifle in tow, Ray left for Memphis late the next night. He arrived in Memphis on April 3rd and checked into the new Rebel Motor Hotel using another one of his aliases, Eric S. Galt.
0: When King arrived in Memphis on April 3rd, he went straight to the Lorraine Motel, his favorite place to stay in town. It was a rainy, windy day, and he had to prepare to rally a crowd in the miserable weather. That night, he arrived at the Mason Temple to give the last speech he would ever make. King's words were moving, memorable, and darkly prescient.
1: We've got some difficult days ahead. But well, it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Yeah. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. I've seen. The Promised Land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the Promised Land. The next day, James Earl Ray checked the newspaper and found photographs of King coming and going from his hotel room. He now knew exactly where King was staying, including his room number. The only entrance to King's room was via a balcony, which meant he would be exposed every time he entered or exited his room. It was the perfect place to strike.
0: April 4th, 1968, began as a quiet day for Martin Luther King. He didn't have any speeches or interviews scheduled that day, but hoped to hold a march on the coming Monday, April 8th. A judge had placed an injunction against the march, and for much of the day, King waited for news from his colleague who was at the courthouse attempting to get the injunction lifted.
1: At 3 p.m., Ray checked out of his room at the new Rebel Motor Hotel and relocated to Bessie Brewer's rooming house, directly across the street from King's room at the Lorraine Motel.
0: The first room he was shown into didn't face the Lorraine. Ray rejected the room and insisted on seeing another. The next room had a clear, unobstructed view of King's balcony, but at an angle that would be difficult for aiming a gun. But Ray couldn't push his luck any further. He accepted the room and checked in under the name John Willard.
1: Ray's room didn't have its own bathroom. Instead, he had access to a restroom down the hall that was shared with the other rooms on the floor. When Ray went to the bathroom, he realized that if he stood in the bathtub, the restroom window gave him a direct line to the exterior balcony of King's room across the street.
0: Ray couldn't spend all day in the bathroom. Another guest would notice his extended occupancy and complain. Instead, he would stay in his room watching King's room from his own window. When he saw King come or leave, he would grab his gun and run down the hallway to the bathroom. If the bathroom was unoccupied and if King hadn't already moved out of range by then, Ray would act immediately.
1: For the rest of the afternoon, King took phone calls and meetings in his room until 5.50 p.m. when his associate arrived and announced that the judge had lifted the injunction. The march could go on as planned. For a short while, King celebrated the good news with his friends and colleagues.
0: King had plans to join another minister for dinner that night, but he was running late due to all the meetings and phone calls he'd had to make that afternoon. Even once King was ready to go, his friend, Ralph Abernathy, said he needed a little more time. Finally, at 6.01 p.m., King's patience was waning, He offered to give Abernathy his privacy and stepped outside to wait.
1: Across the street, James Earl Ray saw King emerge from his room and stand out on the balcony in full view. Gun in hand, Ray ran from his room to the bathroom. He locked the door and stepped into the bathtub.
0: Out on the balcony, King joked with Abernathy and other members of his entourage inside. Even though they were running late, he was in a good mood. He looked down to greet a friend passing on the street below.
1: Inside the hotel room, Abernathy heard what he thought sounded like a car backfiring. He glanced out the door. King lay sprawled on the ground. The sound wasn't a car. It was a single fatal gunshot. Abernathy ran to his friend's side, horrified by how much blood already pooled around him. Abernathy held King in his arms and tried to comfort him as he faded from consciousness. He repeated, It's all right. Don't worry. This is Ralph. This is Ralph.
0: Across the street, Ray fled Bessie Brewer's rooming house. Numerous witnesses saw him running from the scene of the crime with what appeared to be a gun wrapped in a blanket.
1: That gun was both bulky and incriminating. Ray decided to ditch the evidence leaving it on the street corner in plain sight. Free of the weapon, Ray rushed to his white Mustang and sped away.
0: At 6.10 p.m., less than 10 minutes after King was shot, an ambulance arrived at the Lorraine Motel. Just four minutes later, the ambulance delivered King to St. Joseph's Hospital. He was unconscious, but still alive. The emergency room doctors rushed him into surgery, but the damage from the gunshot was too severe. At 7.05 p.m., he was pronounced dead.
1: Immediately after the shooting, the Lorraine Motel became a major crime scene. Police and detectives swarmed the area, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses. They soon learned about the man who'd been spotted fleeing the rooming house and driving away in a white Mustang.
0: Police found the abandoned gun at 6.16 p.m., mere minutes after their arrival. When they checked purchase records, they found the name Ray had used to purchase the weapon, Harvey Lohmeyer.
1: With that name in hand, the FBI began what was at that time the most expensive manhunt in United States history. Soon, they learned the name of the man who had rented the room at Bessie Brewer's rooming house, John Willard. At that point, the FBI thought that Willard and Lohmeyer were separate individuals, and King had been the victim of a conspiracy.
0: While the FBI searched for the elusive killers, James Earl Ray kept driving. He didn't stop until he reached Atlanta the next morning, April 5th, at 6 a.m. The drive took longer than it normally would have because Ray took side streets and drove under the speed limit in an effort to avoid notice. He abandoned his white Mustang in Atlanta. From there, he traveled via bus and train, crossing national borders to reach Toronto, Canada, on either April 6th or April 8th.
1: While in Canada, Ray operated under yet another alias, Paul Bridgman. For several weeks, he remained in Toronto, trying to acquire a passport under his false name. Unfortunately for Ray... The real Paul Bridgman had requested a passport recently, which led to a delay. Ray finally received his false passport in mid-April, and on April 16th, Ray, as Bridgman, purchased round-trip airplane tickets to London. He had no intention of coming back, but a round-trip ticket was cheaper than a single flight.
0: Just days later, on April 19th, the FBI was able to match the numerous fingerprints left at the scene of King's murder to James Earl Ray's prison records. They realized Lohmeyer and Galt were both aliases of the same individual. Days after making this discovery, the FBI put out a call for James Earl Ray's arrest.
1: It was too late. Ray was already in Toronto, and on May 6th, he boarded his flight to London. He was officially off the continent.
0: After arriving in London, Ray didn't even leave the airport. He immediately bought a new pair of round-trip tickets to Lisbon, Portugal. He stayed in Portugal 10 days, then returned to London. Ray was afraid to stay in one country too long, but he needed time to come up with the money for a ticket to his preferred destination, Rhodesia.
1: Rhodesia, located in what is now Zimbabwe, was an African nation where the white minority ruled over the majority black population. It was considered a haven for white supremacists. In addition, Rhodesia didn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, even if U.S. investigators were able to trace Ray there, they'd have no way of forcing him to come home.
0: But London to Rhodesia was a long flight and tickets were expensive. On June 4th, Ray fundraised the only way he knew how, robbing a London bank. Unfortunately, he only netted the equivalent of $240, not enough to get to Rhodesia. Even worse, Police investigating the bank robbery were able to recover Ray's fingerprints and match them to the manhunt in the United States. Soon, Scotland Yard and the FBI both knew that James Earl Ray was in London.
1: After the failed robbery, Ray knew he couldn't stay in London long. So on June 7th, he bought a ticket to Brussels, Belgium. He used the alias Ramon George Snade unaware that Scotland Yard had already determined that false identity as belonging to him.
0: On the next morning, June 8th, Ray arrived at the airport for his flight to Brussels. When he tried to pass through customs, the official noticed that Ray had two passports in his wallet. Finding that suspicious, the customs officer asked Ray to show him his second passport.
1: Ray justified the second passport by claiming he'd ordered a replacement after his name was misspelled on the original. This was true. Due to Ray's poor handwriting, he'd been issued a passport under the name Ramon Sneya, and another for Ramon Snaid. The customs official accepted this explanation and let Ray through.
0: However, a Scotland Yard policeman stationed at the airport overheard the exchange and wasn't satisfied with Ray's explanation. He asked to search Ray and found that he was carrying a concealed pistol. Ray was arrested and soon fingerprinting revealed him to be an extremely wanted man.
1: After nearly two months on the run, Ray was on his way back to the United States in handcuffs. He would stand trial for the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And his guilty plea would only make the assassination more complicated.
0: Coming up next, we'll discuss James Earl Ray's guilty plea at the start of his trial and the fallout when he recanted a few days later. Now, back to the story.
1: On March 10, 1969, James Earl Ray entered a courtroom in Memphis, Tennessee. Ray had been held in solitary confinement since his arrest nine months earlier. And that day, as he stepped into a crowded courtroom, he saw more people than he'd laid eyes on in months.
0: When the judge asked Ray for his plea, Ray replied that he was guilty. The judge wasn't surprised, but still needed to confirm that Ray understood what he was doing. On the record, the judge asked Ray if he felt he'd been coerced, if he understood that he'd be sentenced based on his plea, and if he truly had killed Martin Luther King Jr. Ray's answers were consistent. He was guilty and stood by his plea.
1: By offering a guilty plea, James Earl Ray ended his trial before it could even begin. In exchange, he wouldn't face the death penalty. However, this also meant that prosecutors and defense couldn't offer evidence, and the public would never hear the full cases for or against Ray.
0: On the basis of Ray's plea, the judge sentenced him to 99 years in prison. Since Ray was already 41 years old, this was effectively a life sentence.
1: To this day, James Earl Ray has never undergone a full trial. This is particularly important in light of Ray's surprising actions three days after he offered his guilty plea.
0: On March 13th, Ray began to dispute the facts of the case that he'd already pled guilty to. He announced that he wasn't King's killer. He'd been set up and had pled guilty due to the bad advice of his lawyer.
1: According to this new story, while Ray was traveling between Mexico and the U.S. in 1967, he'd been approached by a man named Raul. Raul was a member of a conspiracy, possibly operating under the direction of the FBI or a white supremacist hate group committed to killing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
0: According to Ray, Raul had given him instructions that, in hindsight, were designed to set him up as a patsy. He'd bought the gun on Raul's instruction. He'd checked into Bessie Brewer's rooming house because Raul had told him to. At the time of King's assassination, Ray had been on the other side of the city having his car repaired while the real assassin fired the rifle. Ray had pled guilty to a crime he didn't commit because he wanted to avoid the death penalty. And now that he'd been sentenced, he was ready to tell the truth.
1: Ray's pronouncement proved divisive. To some, like King's widow, Coretta Scott King, the news story seemed utterly convincing. She remembered that King had been targeted by white supremacist groups and the FBI throughout his life. To others, Ray's story seemed suspicious— Of course he would renounce his guilty plea while facing the possibility of life in prison.
0: Within weeks, journalists and police began to investigate Ray's claims. It proved a difficult task. During his imprisonment, Ray identified over 20 different individuals as the mysterious Raul, including Louisiana State Trooper Raul Esquivel and Baton Rouge Deputy Herman Thompson. All of the accused men were able to provide alibis for the days and times Ray claimed to meet with them. Many people resolved that Ra'ul didn't actually exist.
1: However, Ray was never given a trial after his initial guilty plea. The question of how strong the evidence against him was has been up for debate for the half-century since King's death.
0: Guilty or innocent, Ray was unwilling to spend the remainder of his life in prison. He attempted to escape from Brushy Mountain Prison in Nashville, Tennessee twice before he finally breached the walls on his third try. On June 10th, 1977, after eight years behind bars, Ray led a band of six other convicts into the prison yard during evening recreation time. They laid a ladder they'd fashioned out of wire against the fence, climbed over, and escaped.
1: Guards immediately spotted the inmates and opened fire. One escapee was injured, but Ray and five others successfully escaped. For days, Tennessee police searched for Ray and the other convicts. They used bloodhounds to sniff out the trail, and by early the next week, Ray and all the other escapees were found and returned to prison.
0: Ray's only hope of getting out for good was a new trial. In 1975, a series of leaks and scandals revealed abuses of power within the FBI and CIA, including the FBI's harassment of Dr. King. As public distrust of the government eroded in 1976, the U.S. House Committee on Assassinations opened an investigation into the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr.
1: In 1978, James Earl Ray testified before the House Committee. He repeated his story about Raoul and continued to claim his own innocence. After a year of hearing testimony and gathering evidence, the U.S. House Committee on Assassinations revealed their findings. There was no evidence that Raoul existed. But they did find compelling evidence of a larger conspiracy to assassinate Martin Luther King Jr.,
0: The committee cited Ray's sudden shift to political activity in 1967 and his inexplicable trip to New Orleans the same year, both of which suggested he may have been recruited into a conspiracy around this time. Additionally, they found that Ray's purchase of a gun, subsequent return, and purchase of a more powerful rifle was evidence that someone had advised him on which weapon to purchase.
1: Most compelling of all, however, the committee closely tracked Ray's income and spending from the day of his escape from Missouri State Penitentiary in 1967 until his arrest in June of 1968. During that year, Ray only reported $664.34 in income from legitimate work, but he spent roughly $9,000 worth close to $70,000 today, adjusting for inflation. The most logical explanation was that the rest of his money was earned through criminal activity. And given Ray's relatively unsuccessful record as a petty thief and burglar, it was hard to believe he made that kind of money on his own. The committee concluded that Ray was most likely involved in a larger criminal enterprise— perhaps one that had hired him to kill Martin Luther King.
0: The committee's fines caused a stir, but they weren't the same thing as a retrial. Their findings had no bearing on Ray's prison sentence.
1: Almost two decades after the House committee released their findings, Ray found an unexpected ally. On March 28, 1997, Martin Luther King Jr.'s youngest son, Dexter King, visited Ray in prison. During this meeting, Dexter asked Ray about the assassination.
0: I just want to ask you for the record, um, did you kill my father? No, no, I didn't. It was a rather amazing meeting. Here's the man who's accused of killing Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis in 1968, sitting down with this man's son. And at the conclusion of the meeting, Dexter King is saying, I believe and my family believes that this man is innocent. After this meeting, Dexter King served as a champion for James Earl Ray's case. The younger King was instrumental in advocating for a retrial and giving Ray the opportunity to clear his name. It shocked the civil rights community to see Dexter King advocating for the man who had confessed to killing his father.
1: In the fall of 1997, Ray and his lawyer finally received a ruling that the Tennessee Criminal Court of Appeals would hear his case. Unfortunately, Ray's youth spent heavily drinking had caught up with him. He suffered from cirrhosis and was too sick to stand trial. His lawyer, William Pepper, explained the situation to the press in
0: 1998. He's dying, if we, we've been unsuccessful thus far in raising the funds for a liver transplant. It uh, it it doesn't look very good. If he dies, of course, the petition dies with him. And um, he he came out of a coma recently and is holding his own, but uh, he doesn't have a great deal of, of time to uh, to live. On April twenty third, nineteen ninety eight, James Earl Ray succumbed to liver disease. He was seventy years old. He never had the opportunity to see his case retried. Ray died of kidney failure and liver disease complications while serving a 99-year prison term for killing King. While Ray confessed following the 1968 assassination, he recanted shortly after, but Ray never got the trial that he'd sought for years. The King family believes Ray was innocent. Other civil rights leaders have their doubts, including the Reverend Jesse Jackson.
1: I do hope that our government will leave No stone unturned.
0: The Justice Department says it will continue its review of the King assassination despite the death of his confessed killer.
1: Now that the accused and confessed assassin was deceased, there was no reason for the government to pursue a retrial. But to this day, a lot of debate still swirls about whether James Earl Ray really acted alone when he killed Dr. King.
0: Although King's life was cut short, his legacy lived on after him. A week after his death, on April 11, 1968, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1968 into law.
1: After his death, King's widow, Coretta Scott King, became a new spokesperson for racial equality, as did King's friend, Ralph Abernathy, who had been an advisor prior to King's death. As King's children matured into adulthood, they too assumed his mantle.
0: In the years and decades after King's death, the controversial political leader became a national hero. This is partially due to changing attitudes about civil rights and racial equality, but also because King's premature death turned him into a martyr. He became remembered primarily for his nonviolent policies and famous speeches, while his more controversial attitudes were played down. As political scientist Gene Theo Harris explained, "quote, what a martyred king allows is to sand off what makes us uncomfortable. Have him be the dream guy. It places him safely in the distant past."
1: Martin Luther King Jr. was only 39 years old when he died. If he hadn't been assassinated, he could have lived to see his 90th birthday in January 2019. If James Earl Ray hadn't shot King, the course of the following decades might have been very different.
0: After achieving prominence as an advocate for racial equality, King began to turn to other issues like anti-war and economic rights advocacy. Today, King is known as a great fighter for black rights, but if he'd had more time to fight for his other key issues, We might also remember him as an advocate for peace or workers' rights.
1: Just a few months before his death, King announced he wanted to launch a Poor People's Campaign, and he planned to stage a march and issue an Economic Bill of Rights in May of 1968. He died before he could see these plans through. But had he survived, he may have pushed for the same level of economic reforms that he'd already achieved on racial equality issues.
0: On the civil rights front, King's death served as a flashpoint in the movement. The night of his death, riots broke out in cities throughout the United States. The National Guard had to intervene in Wilmington, Delaware, and guardsmen continued to occupy the city for a full year after the riots concluded.
1: However, the same night King died, Bob Moore of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee noted that the group published 50,000 flyers using King's assassination as a call to peaceful action and organization. In death, King became a symbol both for nonviolent protesters as well as for more militant movements.
0: We can't ignore how controversial King was during his life. In 1966, polls revealed that twice as many people disapproved of King as admired him. But by the 1990s, King was an uncontroversial and widely admired figure. As we noted, changing attitudes on racial equality played a part in this shift. But if King had never been assassinated, he wouldn't have been venerated as a martyr. Instead, he may have continued to be perceived by many as controversial, confrontational and discomforting.
1: It's possible that, like his fellow civil rights activist, Jesse Jackson, Dr. King may have at some point run for the presidency. It's debatable whether he would have been able to secure a major party's nomination or even a win, but a Martin Luther King Jr. presidency would certainly have changed the shape of American politics and policy.
0: It's important to remember that King didn't work alone while he was alive. He collaborated closely with other civil rights activists who continued his work after he died. While it may be tempting to imagine that King would have single-handedly changed the course of racial politics in the United States, it's likely that he would have continued to face the same challenges and roadblocks that Coretta Scott King and Ralph Abernathy grappled with after his death. When he died, his colleagues lost an important voice, but continued their fight.
1: And that fight continues to this day. While Martin Luther King may be gone, his ideals continue to live on in the ongoing battles for racial and economic equality.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to our Assassinations Summer of 69 special.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, check out Parcast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer.
0: We'll be back with a new episode of Assassinations next week. If you're interested in learning more about the Summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Assassinations was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.